want you to know how much I appreciate the song service. Boy, you people know how to sing. That's great. The Lord put a song in your heart. Amen. I know I ran up, ran overtime in the Sunday school time, and I don't know. I'm not going to promise you I won't, but I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, what I told the folk this morning, that my Sunday school lesson was sort of setting the table for my message this morning. And uh, if you weren't here for Sunday school, what can I tell you? Tough. Uh, turn to Second Timothy chapter 4. I like the sound of turning pages. Glad you bring your own Bibles to church with you. I don't know about you, but there's something special about your own Bible, isn't it? I mean, you can get the Bible out of the pew, but it's not, it's not like your own. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Father in heaven, we commit these moments to you. Lord, you know our own weaknesses, our own frailties. You know, Lord, how dependent we are upon you. And we pray, O oh Father, that, that you would superintend the preaching of your word this morning. May it find lodging and receptiveness in hearts and accomplish that which you intend for the honor and the glory and the praise of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Second Timothy is written by Paul from Rome in prison. Uh, Nero is having the sword sharpened. The axe is really getting ready. Because Paul is going to have his head chopped off. You have to recognize many of the early disciples who were put to death were crucified. Because that was the Roman method of execution the Roman method of capital punishment. But there was a glitch here. 
because Paul was a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens had rights. And one of the rights that a Roman citizen had was that he could never be crucified. So, Nero had to resort to another method, just as deadly, accomplish the same end, but crucifixion, which of course is a shameful death, we understand that. But uh, he is saying, the time of my departure is at hand. He knew it was going to happen. He knew it was going to take place. He's writing this letter to Timothy, who is, by his own definition, a son in the faith. Timothy was younger. How much younger, I don't know. We can't tell, but there's one place, and I think it's in 1 Timothy, he said, let no man despise your youth. Uh, Paul was probably well up in his 60s, I guess. He had been saying, I'm ready to be offered. I'm ready to go. I can recall so a little over a year and a half ago when Marilyn passed away. The last eight weeks were very hard for her. Actually, the last eight years were very trying, but the last eight weeks were particularly hard. And the last three weeks was a time she spent in a nursing home. It was a time that they diagnosed that her kidneys had closed down. And they wanted her back in the hospital for dialysis. And Marilyn said, no. I'm ready to go home. It was another week and a half after that because they stopped treatments. And with the kidneys not working, the body got more and more poisoned until it was a hard time for me. But she was looking at what she had been through. And, uh, you know, Paul said, forget the things which are behind and look forward. And she had an upward look. And she said, I'm ready to go home. I mean, I don't know anything about Paul. I, don't, I mean, he, he had a rough life. There's no question. There's no question, but he very had a very hard life. But uh, there were times when he said that he would rather go and be with the Lord, but recognized that it was better for him to stay. It was better for the churches. It was better for the people that he was establishing. And she felt that way. The time, it's my time, the time of my departure. I'm ready. Paul says, the time of my departure is at hand. And now he reflects. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. And I have kept the faith. The first thing to see here is that there is a fight. There is a conflict. 
he can look back at his life and he could feel that he did what was required of him. The life that he lived, even though many times he said, I'm not perfect, he knew that he had committed his life to the Lord. He knew that he was doing what God wanted him to do. And he was saying, this fight, I want to look at a couple of things that the fight involves. Look at verses 2 and 4 in this chapter. Writing to Timothy, he says, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap unto themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and they shall be turned unto fables. The fight is a fight for the word of God. The fight is one to stand true. James talks about contending for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The Word of God has been given to us. It has been preserved for us down through not only the 2,000 years of Christian history, but the Old Testament time going back another maybe 1,500 years before this. And God had promised that He was going to preserve His Word. And the more we understand about Bible history and church history, the more that we can, have, we can understand that it is a fight. It's a fight today in the United States of America. Somehow or other, people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians are looked upon very strangely. They are looked upon as a little bit kooky. It was one time, a number of years ago, I was called to serve jury duty. And I served jury duty down on Sutphin Boulevard in Jamaica. And those of you who have served jury duty, you understand the voir dire proceeding. The voir dire proceeding is where they want, want to put a, a jury together. And they call men and they sit them down in the jury box and the, the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney ask questions. The term voir dire means to speak the truth. They want you to tell them. It was during one of these sessions that there was one of the men uh, was being, being con, uh, considered for impaneling along with myself. And... Uh, when they asked what his occupation was, he said he was in television. Well, he was questioned, I was questioned. Needless to say, neither one of us was selected for that particular case. And I didn't see him for several days. One day I encountered him, and I walked up to him and I said, you know, we were sitting on the same wadir a couple of days ago, and you said you were in television. I said, I'm just wondering, in what area of television do you work? And, and then he was telling me he's not really a television per se, but with advertising. And he's concerned with 
truth in advertising and were saying how uh, difficult it is to get the community involved in, you know, putting truthful advertising together. And then he was telling me about the problems he had with fundamentalists and these kooky people. And uh, he says all they, do, all they know how to do is quote scripture. And, uh, and I let him go on for a while, and then I said, but, sir, I'm a fundamentalist. Well, uh, do you really believe the Bible? Do you really believe the Bible literally? What about Noah and the ark and Jonah and the whale and, you know... So we talked to him for a while, and then he says, you know, I read the Bible once. He grew up in a Presbyterian church, and he says, I suppose I should read it more. We had a time talking with him, but somehow or other he had to backpedal a lot because somehow or other he didn't feel like I was kooky. I didn't sort of fit into the box that he put fundamentalists. Oh, fun, oh, 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 there's some crazy fundamentalists. I think there are. But you know what? I'd rather side with them. I'd rather side with the kooks if they want to stand on the word of God. You know. But it's a fight for the word of God. We need to stand for the word. And now, uh, all right, look in uh, verse number five. He's saying, but watch, watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. He's saying, the, not only is the fight for the word of God, the fight is to be aware, to be watching. We have to know what's happening. There's so many things, even within fundamentalism today. The people who we used to align ourselves with, and we would call them fundamental, independent, Bible-believing Baptists, and we find crazy things going on. We find crazy things with music. We find crazy things with the way they approach the Word of God, what they do as far as Bible versions are concerned, all kinds of things. We've got to be careful, and we've got to watch. And we've got to watch our own step. There's a place where Paul is saying we are supposed to walk circumspectly. Means walk very carefully and watch where you put your feet. I don't know, there's a few times I've been walking down the street. Maybe I'm in my own thoughts or in my own minds and my foot will stub on a flag in the pavement that's up, maybe maybe a half an inch, maybe an inch, but wham, I hit it and bang. You know, you have to watch where you step. And you have to watch spiritually. You have to watch. You have to be careful. It's just a part of the conflict and is the fight for the world. He says, uh, well, verse 5 
But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist. That means go soul winning. That means be careful about the people that you surround yourself with. And, you know, there are many people who are just wanting to hear the word of the gospel. And nobody tells them. I've been guilty many times. And I think I mentioned this one of the last times I was preaching for you, but it sticks in my mind. One of the things that I used to do in Woodhaven, one of, one of my activities was dog walking. I'm a dog person. I haven't had a dog since I've retired and moved upstate, but I always had dogs. And one of the great things about walking dogs is you get to meet neighbors. And the nicer the dog you have, the bigger the dog you have, somebody, you know, they'll always want to talk to you. There was this gentleman. Every morning I'd go out walking the dog, I'd run across him. And we would talk. You know, I'm good at that. I, I can talk on any subject very easily. And we talked about sports and we talked about politics. And we were always on the wrong end of something, but somehow or other we always gravitated to a conversation. And there was this one particular Sunday morning. Uh, I walked and he ran to catch up with me. And so we stopped and we talked. And well, I told him, sorry, I can't, I can't talk today. I have to... Get ready. I have to get to church, you know, and I, I, uh, he seemed to want to talk, and I kept brushing him off. And uh, the next day, I went out walking the dog, and one of the neighborhood ladies came running after me. Pastor, pastor, she says, I want to talk to you. I can't remember the guy's name offhand. Well, she says, he died yesterday. And uh, I saw, I talked to him. He seemed fine. He seemed fine when I saw him. But he was gone. I went to the funeral and talked to his wife. She says, oh, you're the pastor he always talks to. And she was telling me how, he, how much he wanted to talk to me yesterday. With all my talking, I never shared the gospel with him. Never. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how I felt in the funeral parlor? And how could I even face his wife and talk to her at all? Do the work of an evangelist. We must. He says, in season and out of season. And describes it by reprove, rebuke, exhort. With all long-suffering and doctrine. And he says in verse 5, make full proof of thy ministry. He's talking to a pastor, but you know what? 
it refers to lay people also. You know, we Baptists don't generally use those words, lay and clergy. But, you know, all too often people who occupy the pews get the idea that this is a function of the pastor. It is. It is, but not only. And, you know, you know people that the pastor doesn't know. You have friends that you might be the only person who could share the gospel with them. We have a responsibility. Make full proof of your ministry. So there is this great battle, but there's a great faith. He says, not only, uh, not only have I fought a good fight, he says, I have kept the faith. The faith that was once delivered to the saints. And what is this talking about? There are sometimes faith is a verb and sometimes faith is a noun. But when James was talking about the faith, when Paul said, I have kept the faith, he's talking about something specific and something special and something that is understood by everybody or it should be. What's, what is the faith that was first delivered to the saints? Let me give it to you uh, so I don't quote it wrong. It's in 1 Corinthians and it's in chapter 15 and the resurrection chapter. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Now here it comes. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel encapsulated. It is the faith that was once delivered to the saints. If you eliminate any part of that, you are not preaching the gospel. I was listening to something on the way down here. Truthfully, I can't tell you what I was listening to. But it was... I think it was Fox News, but they were interviewing Tim LaHaye. You know, the man who wrote the Left Behind series? And he's questioning LaHaye about why is Jesus Christ so important? How does he captivate the hearts and minds of people 2,000 years after he lived? I wish that Tim LaHaye would have done a better job 
of telling him, he did mention his death, burial, and resurrection, but it's almost like he threw it away. Very, you know, just very, very passing. But, you know, Christ was important. He is important. He will be important. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the gospel is all encapsulated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that includes an awful lot of things. It includes his deity. It includes his virgin birth. It it includes his substitutionary sacrificial death. It includes the blood that was shed for the remission of sins. It includes forgiveness that we can know that we have been forgiven, that we've been adopted into the family of God, and that we can be sure, that we can know without any reasonable doubt that we have a home eternal in the heavens. We know that we have everlasting life. We know that when this body ends, that we will be forever with the Lord. All part of the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And the faith does a couple of things. The faith accomplishes. Why? Because Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It's not how well we speak. It's not how poorly we speak. It's not whether we have a good personality or we do not have a a good personality. The gospel is that which saves, which transforms. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be a theologian. You know, my brother was instrumental in leading my father to the Lord. I was about seven years old, so my brother was about three. Can you imagine a three-year-old evangelist? I want to take a few moments and, you know, just think about a man that had been a merchant seaman. His life involved things like smoking and drinking, swearing, I understand. You know, even I, I cannot remember my life too much before seven years of age. I was talking to my sister just a couple of days ago, and she says, you, you would remember uh, what Pop's life was before he was saved, because uh, I was seven when she was born, and she doesn't remember, you know, post-Christianity as far as my father is concerned. But I told her, you know, I don't. And I think, I think part of that is that the Lord gave me blindness. I don't have to remember what he was like before. I know what he was like after. I know that he was the one who was instrumental in keeping me and helping me and wanting me to be a good Christian man. And uh, whether he succeeded or not, I don't know. But I'll tell you, uh, 
he was a man who believed in Christ. He was led to... My, bro, my brother didn't really lead him to the Lord, but brought him to come to church so he could hear the gospel and could get saved. The faith is that which assures us. It's that which gives us this confidence that we know that when this life is over, we do have a home in heaven. And it's a faith that abides, it stays with us. You know, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, he says, you will ask what you will and it will be done. It's through, the, it's through the faith in Jesus Christ that we're able to function, that we're able to live. And we are to contend for that. We have also a glorious finish. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. You know, people talk about our days being numbered. I guess, I guess, in a way, I suppose. But I don't know. I mean, when, if they are. All we know is what we have. All we know is when we get up in the morning and, and we know that we have a pulse and we know that we're breathing and we're able to put our feet on the floor, we're here and we're here for another day. And for this day, this is the course. This is the day that we're to live for the Lord. This is the day. It's the only day that we have. Talked about the man. If I talk to him that day, Who's to tell? I mean, there's a number of men I led to the Lord basically almost on their death door. It's happened. I've known, I've known it's happened. But it wasn't this man. The only day. Because I didn't have the next day. And when he says, I finished my course, I like to say he finished it. He, he didn't quit. He didn't faint. It was over. And you know who offended it? Nero did. With his axe or his sword or whatever. And from that execution site, Paul went right from there to to be with the Lord. You see, he didn't fail. He just continued. And he finished. And we're running out of time. But the last one here, I have to do this one. Because if I don't do this one, the other two don't matter. Verse 8, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. And not to me only, unto all them that love his appearing. A crown of righteousness. This is why we spent our, our Sunday school hour talking about crowns. This crown. The crown of righteousness is the crown for those who anticipate his return. Who anticipate his coming again. Didn't he promise that? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am, ye may be also. Now, Paul was 
looking for that crown. And here we understand that he secured the crown. And it's because of the crown that he was serving. Now, I mean, a lot of people who say, you know, that we we should not be serving the Lord for rewards. Of course not. We serve the Lord because we love him. We love him because he first loved us. We would not be able to love him if it was not for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The reward, the Lord, the righteous judge shall give it to me at that day. The reward, the reward is for love, for loving him, but more because he loved us. The reward is because we labor, because we recognize our time here is short, because we recognize that there is a commission that Christ gave before he ascended up on high. He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then he says, Lo, I'm with you always even unto the end of the world. And it's a reward for living. It's a reward for living a godly life. It's a reward that we get for living in an unloving world where Jesus tells us that we are to let our light so shine before men that they can see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. You want to know something? We can't evaluate our works. Paul, in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, where he was criticizing people who were judging him. But he says, I don't even judge my own self. He says, I'm not able to do that, but I leave that to the Lord, the righteous judge. Because one day we're going to stand before him. Everything will be made right. But you know, I'll tell you something. Your neighbors, maybe unsaved members in your family, I mean, they can tell you, they can tell you how a Christian should live. You know, it's surprising to me that the ungodly can tell Christians how the Christian is supposed to live. Isn't this true? Why? Because Satan knows and Satan Satan gets in people's heads and he calls to their attention. But you know what? There is something in you as a Christian, as a blood-bought child of God, which, which, which uh, manifests itself. Even when we are not aware of it, it manifests itself, and people will know. But we are to live. We're supposed to live in this world like those who has a citizenship that is not here. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven. You know the song, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Isn't this a wonderful thing? 
and then we will reign with him forever. Would you look in Romans in chapter 8 and verse 17? I'm going to read from verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bear witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. And now verse 17, Then if children then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if so be, that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. I'm going to take you to a a portion that I closed the Sunday school with, and it's in the book of Revelation. But it says that this crown of righteousness is to all them that love his appearing. And the crown we see here in the Revelation in chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, And the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hath redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And we shall see him. I hope trust this is an encouragement. I trust that this is something that you can keep looking to because we are told to put our eyes on things ahead. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin of the 
and the, the, weight, every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a focus. We keep our eyes. It's an upward look. Keep it focused. Now, the only other thing is, if you're not a Christian, all of what I have said this morning does not pertain to you. You're out of Christ. You're outside of the covenants. You're out of the family of God. You're without hope, without God in the world. But I have good news. God loves you. God does not want you to perish. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. I will And Jesus said, All the Father giveth me will come to me, and him that cometh unto me. I will in no wise cast out. All through the Bible, all through the, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will find very simply what he is describing, this new relationship that you can have with him. It's called abundant life. It's called eternal life. It's called everlasting life. And how is it obtained? By simple faith. He that hears my words... And believed on him that sent me hath everlasting life and will not come into condemnation. Will never go to hell. But will have everlasting life. That's the story. That's it. Let's pray. I have a couple of questions, and I'm not one to give long invitations. I don't know what Pastor Pete's practice is, but how many of you who are here today, and you can say absolutely on the authority of God's Word, I know I'm saved. I know that if this life were to end that I would have a home in heaven. It's not a hope-so thing. It's not a guess thing. It's something because God said so. I believe it, and I know. How many of you, just quickly put up your hand. This is your confidence. This is your assurance. This is your hope. Amen. Okay, thank you. Put it down. Now, I see that there are some hands that have not been raised, and there are varied reasons that people don't raise hands. I understand that. I'm not, I'm not able to pry into, into your hearts, minds, consciences, or anything else, nor do I intend to. I can't try, but God knows hearts. If you happen to be somebody who's here today, and you know that you have, you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, you have no assurance for the afterlife, you do not know that you will be in heaven And most of the time, people I've talked to know that there's a place called hell. And they know that they don't want to go there. But you know what? They want to get to heaven by their own rules. 
and that's unfortunate. You can't. You have to come God's way. If you're outside of Christ, if this pertains to you, would you just like to just quickly put your hand up and by this, you just say this, Pastor, I know, I know that I'm not saved. I'd like to be. I'd like to understand better than I do. And I'd like for you to pray for me. Would you do that and just quickly put your hand up? Yes, I see that. Yes, yes, I see that too. Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else? Father, you know. You know each one who's here. You know each heart. You know every situation and every circumstance. Father, I just ask that you would just work in each heart and in each life and accomplish that which is pleasing to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother. As Carolina plays the invitation, 541, only trust him. Let's stand together. This is a time we call the time of invitation.